I just used it in my business. I would meditate every day, uh, do yoga, think about what is success. I accessed my right brain. I used intuition and I used all of the things that we understand. So I did that a lot in my career, especially when I had decisions to make. And then when I did become a a leader, I I didn't do it very much because the first time I came home from a class, one of these metaphysical classes, uh, I turned to my friend behind me. His name is Tony. And uh, we're both engineers right now, right? We're computer programmers, degrees math, computer science, blah, blah, blah. I started to tell him about one of these energy fields, how the right side of the body is different from the left side of the body, something like that. He looked at me like I had three heads. He said, Bill, are you okay? (laughs) I said, Tony, I'm fine. I said, come on, open up your mind. And he goes, no, no, no. It was right then that I realized I couldn't talk about this stuff at work. I had to keep these two lives separate, my business life and this avocation that I had of all of these wonderful principles that I was learning. Welcome. I am your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. Hopefully, you enjoyed our two-part series with Kurt Landon of Inspira. We talked about how a career in human capital can prepare you for entrepreneurship and also how he's building a new type of HR services firm, one that blends human capital management, executive search, and technology to solve mission-critical issues for high-growth companies. Our guest today is a serial entrepreneur, author, coach, and consultant. Bill Principale started four successful businesses, beginning in the mid-80s. Now, he's focused primarily on helping CEOs and small business owners succeed. He also just published a book called Improvisational Leaders, which integrates mindfulness and improv comedy techniques to improve business performance. Bill has used mindfulness practices to improve and support his own business performance for over 30 years. And as much as mindfulness today is accepted and supported in the business world, We will hear how when Bill started adopting it, it wasn't really accepted. In our conversation, Bill and I also had a great discussion on a different definition of success and how being the sole owner of his own business allowed him to make choices that were not solely dictated by profit. Finally, as I do every time I have an author, I will give away a copy of Bill's book to the best review for the show left in June and July. So head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review right now. Five star, tell everybody how great the show is. And now enjoy the episode. Let's start by giving our listeners a background, who you are, what you're doing now, and sort of what have been the key moments in your journey. Sure. At this moment in my career, I do uh, executive coaching, organizational consulting, and also improvisational workshops where I get deep into people's listening skills, their uh, self-assessment, authenticity, et cetera. And it's you know, I took improv for fun, but it turns out to be a wonderful tool for uh, for business people and everyone else. So I'm doing all of that right now. I came from the business world in business for, for many years and started four companies of my own. But now I do all of these uh, consulting and coaching work. One thing that was interesting to me when we were introduced, I think you have been incorporating something that is very popular right now, which is the idea of applying mindfulness to business. When we talked, you said that that's been a part of your approach to management that you've integrated in your own life for a really long time. So what attracted you to it? And then what was it like to 
have that tool and instrument in environments that maybe, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago were not as receptive to it. Yeah, actually, it was back in the 70s and 80s, believe it or not, that uh, when, I, when I was first married, my wife said, hey, let's take a, uh, an adult education class together. So I said, sure. So she said, what should we take? I said, you know what, whatever you want. I was being very generous, right? So she comes back and she said, oh, there's something here called occult metaphysics and parapsychology. I said, what the heck is that? She said, I don't know, maybe it's about witchcraft. I said, no, 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 I'm not interested. I was a mathematician, a computer engineer. I have no interest in that. So she says, come on, you promise. I said, fine. Right? So we go into class, and the first thing they talk about is all the esoteric studies, universal principles, purpose of life, involution, evolution. And I was fascinated, and we were both fascinated. So we studied with the center for many, many years. And in fact, I actually taught there at the center. And then I developed in the 90s a class because I was telling the directors, I said, you know, I like to apply and I am applying a lot of these to my business world, which is things like meditation, intuition, right brain access, yoga, and all of these, what might be called esoteric traditions, but really called mindfulness uh, techniques. I'm applying them to business. So I created a class back then called mindfulness or meditation or metaphysics for business. And I would get maybe half a dozen, maybe a dozen people. I was going to write a book about it back then, but I didn't. So I've really been using it since the 70s. So you have been in leadership position in companies throughout all these years, because probably probably 50 years. How has that impacted your approach to leadership and how you define yourself as a leader? Well, I guess first, before I considered myself a leader, I just used it in my business. I would meditate every day, uh, do yoga, think about what is success. And so I accessed my right brain, you know, and I know right now neuroscience says it's not really from the right brain and left brain, but we all know what we're talking about, the linear versus the nonlinear mind. So I just used meditation, I used intuition, and I used all of the things that we understand. You know, like when people say I have a tough decision to make before I make it, I want to go walk along the beach. I want to sleep on it. You know, I, I want to relax and think about it. Well, what are you doing? You're, re- you're relaxing the left brain and quieting it down, allowing the right brain to automatically churn on it. I mean, how many times do we wake up in the middle of the night with an idea or a solution to a problem from the day or sometimes in the shower or sometimes just walking along the beach? That's allowing the right brain, the intuitive mind to work in, on your behalf to help you with solutions. So I did that a lot in my career, especially when I had decisions to make. And then when I did become a a leader, I didn't do it very much because the the first time I came home from a class, one of these metaphysical classes, I turned to my friend behind me, his name was Tony, and uh, we're both engineers right now, right? We're computer programmers, degrees in math, computer science, blah, blah, blah. And so I started to tell him about one of these energy fields, how the right side of the body is different from the left side of the body, something like that. He looked at me like I had three heads. And he said, Bill, are you okay? <laughs> I said, Tony, I'm fine. What? <laughs> I said, come on, open up your mind. And he goes, no, no, no. So it was right then that I realized I couldn't talk about this stuff at work. It was then that I realized I had to keep these two lives separate. My business life and this avocation that I had of all of these wonderful principles that I was learning. So I really never talked about this. 
the first time I did talk about it is when I had my own company, a software development company, and we had a, uh, a small group of uh, six to eight people in the company. And we had a meeting and I said, hey, guys, would you mind if we start this meeting off with a you know, one minute meditation? So they said, no, no, no. I did it. And, you know, I probably talked about earth and skies and, you know, just trying to get people scented before we had our meeting, as I would do on my own. But then after the meeting, one of the managers came up to me and she said, Bill, I'm not comfortable with this at all. I'm very religious and not comfortable. So, again, I shut it down. So for most of my life, uh, Dino, I really was not overt with all of these practices. I want to ground people in sort of like the timing of this, because the company that you mentioned that you founded when you were CEO, what's the name of the company and then what time are we talking about now when this happened? Sure. I started that company in 1986. Uh, I started it in my basement and then I gradually got three or four or five people working there. And then finally the condo police came in and said, you're not allowed to have a business here. So get out. So they threw me out. So that was a time frame. The company is called Prince Software. And we developed um, uh, software for IBM mainframes. Again, that was the time frame. And it, it grew to be a very large company. It grew to be about a $10 million company back in the late 90s. So that's the time frame. And so, yeah, in that period, it was the uh, 90s when I taught the classes uh, at the Metaphysical Center, at the Adult Education, at various uh, workshops and locations uh, locally uh, with little success. I mean, there was success. You get a dozen people and that uh, you can teach them. Great. But it wasn't until recently that, that my book finally came out. Let's talk about your book for a second now. So your book, it's called Improvisation and Leadership, and it blends three disciplines, right? Yes. Business, mindfulness, and improvisation. So how did you come up with the idea to blend these three disciplines? As you know, I always wanted to blend the first two, uh, business and, and mindfulness. I mean, I wanted to write that book in the 90s. I didn't do it. But then I, I was working, I was doing a consulting job in a company in Philadelphia. There, the purpose of that company was to find executives for colleges, universities, higher education. They would find deans, provosts, uh, et cetera. And there's something that always bothered me. After most of us got our master's in computer science, we all went for another degree. Some went for PhD, law degree. I went for business degree, but I never did the thesis. And it always bothered me that I had to put an asterisk next to that in my resume. So I was speaking to the owner of the company, and I said, listen, this is what we do for a living here. I said, can we get me a conversation with the, uh, one of the deans over there, and maybe I can you know, find a way to get this degree finally. So I got the name of a dean. I went to him, and here I am, an adult now. Right? I'm, I'm in my whatever it is, 40s, 50s. I'm an adult. I dress up in my suit. I bring my resume. And I said, hey, Dean, listen, I learned so much over there. Look, I started four companies. I'm doing great. Look at my resume. <laughs> Can't you just give me the degree? <laughs> Apply all of this work to the, to the thesis. So, of course, he laughed. And then he said, look, no, but you can take a couple of uh, classes. I said, okay, but I'm not interested in the straight business classes anymore. Do you have anything that's related to business and spirituality, business and consciousness? He said, oh, yeah. He said, we have Professor Gerard Farias, who runs our sustainability program in the management field. So I spoke to, to uh, Dr. Farias, who's become a good friend of mine now. And he said, oh, Bill, this is great. He says, no, you don't want to take classes. Let's do independent studies. Great. So we did one independent study on studying conscious organizations. And there are many more today than there were 30, 40 years ago. 
you know, whether it's at Patagonia or whatever, there's many, many companies. As, as we know, they have meditation rooms, they have uh, childcare, they have yoga classes, stretch classes, because they understand that mindfulness is important. It's good for the health of the employees. It's good for business. So we did that. But at the end of that, he found out that I do improvisation in, in, in Manhattan. And he said, well, you know, we study improv in the management field. I wasn't aware of that. So the next semester, we did a, a study on the feasibility of applying improvisation to the business world. And I did that study. It was great. And during that process, I'm sorry, this is a long story, but, but during that process, I uh, spoke to a uh, Dr. Gentili who's got a process called giving voice to values. And I told her that improvisation could help that process in the business world. She totally agreed. And so we we're going to write a book about that. So that's what spurred on the book. We took a couple of turns with different publishers and all. So the bottom line is I saw that improvisation and all of its wonderful tools could also help business world. And that's why I added that component to the book. So if a manager or a CEO wants to start applying some of these techniques to their daily decision and management and decision process, what are some of two or three key principles that they can start thinking about? I think the first step is self-awareness. We have to know what's going on inside of us. Otherwise, we're going to make unconscious decisions based on who knows what, based on what. So we need to be self-aware. What are we feeling in every moment in time? Are we angry or upset or whatever? Who are we? What are our tendencies? What are our defaults? So we have to understand who we are and how we operate. Secondly, we need to be aware of the surroundings. What's the environment? Are we in, in a business meeting? Are we with a one-on-one situation? You know, like they say, read the room. You know, what is going on outside? So now you want to match these two. And then the third one is our own authenticity. And for me, that includes vulnerability, includes humility, etc. I mean, we don't want to come off as the boss. A leader should not be an authoritarian situation. All right? It's just that they have a different role. Everyone in the company has leadership qualities, and we all have a different role. So the CEO's role is, is that he's leading the company. But he still or she should be vulnerable, humble, uh, authentic. And if everyone does that, then you get the best. Otherwise, you know, you, we know how it goes. Otherwise, if there are power trips, then we're really not operating from a state of authenticity, but from a state of some power trip that someone needs to have. And that's not going to get us anywhere. So you founded your first business in 86, you mentioned, and you've led four businesses and you work with CEOs. When did you start articulating for yourself who you wanted to be as a CEO, as a leader? And what were some of the, the traits and aspirations that you had for yourself as a leader? As a child, I was taught something very clear. We grew up Italian immigrants in, in Brooklyn. We had everything but not money, okay, because my parents worked in sweatshops. So there was an unspoken or even spoken mantra, go to college, get a better job than this so that you can have financial security. That was the mantra. So it was ingrained so deeply in me that that was the goal. So I don't even know about my leadership thoughts about that point, that was my goal. So I went to college, kept getting more degrees and kept working my way up through the ranks. And once the, the my business grew, then I felt like, okay, I've achieved it. Now, in terms of my leadership at that point, I ran that company like a family. 
for good or, or worse. You know, I mean, that's just who I was. And I ran it like a family, which means I was probably a little bit too lenient with my employees. I did fire people when necessary, but I probably gave them more chances than I, I could have. As the company declined, which is a, a whole long story, I basically kept it longer than I could have. Other Some people said you should have you let it go sooner. There was a lot of things I could have done. But because I ran it like a family, I just said, look, these are people that have families and kids and, and mouths to feed. So, so basically, I extended myself further than I could have or possibly even should have. So once I got past though, that phase of my life, and got to the phase that I, I feel like I'm in now for the last you know five or so years, I feel like I finally found my true mission in life, which is to bring consciousness to the business world. I mean, this is what I wanted to do in the 90s, and this is what I want to do now. But now I don't have that that early mantra since that was it's gone. And so my mantra now is to bring things like mindfulness, improvisation, fun ways, positive ways, easy ways for people to access their deeper, more authentic self, their right brain, which includes an intuition, empathy, heartfulness to the business world. And I'm so happy to see that there are more conscious organizations out there now that are finally thinking the way I have been thinking. So now I am sort of coming out as who I really am, not just a businessman, but a person who wants to help the business world with more uh, positive and conscious techniques and practices that not only will help the business succeed, but will be good for all the individuals and the organization, as well as for society in general. And do you have examples since you came out with this new sort of finally your new and true self? Do you have a success story that you're able to share? Or how has that been received? I'm in the process of getting my message clearer. What I can say, though, is that I've seen terrific responses What the improvisational workshops that I do. I just did one a week ago for uh, several CEOs that I know, friends of mine, in order for them to experience it. And they thought that it was going to be fun and improvisation and games. And they said, yes, it was that. But their comments afterward really helped me to to understand how I operate because they said very quickly we got to a deep place. We had wonderful connections between us. We were very vulnerable and open and therefore because of that had amazing insights about ourselves and how we operate. And the next day, one of the the people at the workshop, uh, she's an executive coach herself, And she said, Bill, you already made me a better coach because I already applied something that was learned yesterday and it worked beautifully. So I can see the impact that these workshops are having on on CEOs, which is very, very heartening. That's great. I want to go back to something you said earlier about the way that you ran the company as a family and that you extended yourself longer to support uh, the family or the company, if you will, because of your, you know, you felt you had a responsibility towards your employees. That is not necessarily a very common view in position of leadership, especially in this country. How did you come to form that view as your role as CEO? That was just from my family and growing up. I mean, that's what we were taught consciously or unconsciously. They care about the people that you're with help everybody else, community-oriented, no one's looking to. In fact, we were taught, like, if we were smarter, for example, than one of our other cousins, you know, we would say, hey, 
don't show them up. So we were taught in a sense to stay small or at least not show anybody up. Don't make anyone feel badly about themselves because you know something that they don't. So it was the opposite of being uh, conceited and pompous. And so in, in one sense, I've had to learn to change that a little bit in that in the business world and some places uh, I have to learn how to be a little bit more open about who I am and what I know and not be concerned because it's information that people want to know. So, so that's where it came from. It came from the way I grew up. So you said after the first company, you had three more, the businesses that you started. What lessons did you sort of carry through from business to business as you were, you know, founding multiple companies? The biggest lessons was from that first company, but there were some lessons from the others because they were shorter. Because what happened is that company, that software company, uh, grew to be a, a very large company, you know, $10 million of annual revenues. That's very large for someone who started themselves. And it was valued at about $30 million. At that point, the valuations were incredibly high. So one company wanted to take me public. And I said, no, I didn't want to listen to the MBAs on Wall Street telling me about quarterly earnings when I'm looking at the long-term range. Another company wanted to merge with me and, and sell to another. He was a bit insulting, and I didn't do that, although that would have been financially successful. The third option I took was to work with an M&A company, merger and acquisition company, to, to sell the company. We did that. We're in the process of that, but we we're basically about two years too late because there's a sweet spot to selling the company, right? If you do it too early, people don't know the value of what you have. Then there's that growth period, which is what they want to recoup. And then there's the period afterwards, which is that you receive the growth, but now you're sort of beyond the, the growth, which sort of where they're interested in. And so we started that process about two years too late because many of my friends did that. And we had a lot of Y2K software. So if I would have sold it like in 96, 97, people would have jumped on that. And we might not have gotten 30 million, we would have gotten 10 million. So that failed basically. And from that time in 99 to 2015, the company declined to basically zero. So it was an unbelievable descent. Uh, lessons learned with that. Oh, well, first of all, I had to stop beating myself up after a while. I mean, <laughs> that took a while. But, but lessons learned, number one, have an independent board. I was a sole ownership of the company, and I didn't know anything about boards and advisors, et cetera, right? Uh, I had no role models for that. So yeah, number one, have a board. It could be, uh, you know, it could be accountants, it could be lawyers, it could be friends that have other businesses. So you get an outside view of what's going on. All right. If I had that, I might have made different decisions or decisions earlier on. Secondly, I mean, you you want that outside view. You want uh, here's the thing for for people that are entrepreneurs and opening a company. Basically, as soon as you open the company, think about your exit strategy. Most people forget to do that. And they go far along, and either it's it's too soon, it's too late, or they don't think about it. So so think about how you want to exit. Do you want to take this company for 40 years, or do you want to move along and do something else? So, so think about that. And then also understand that the growth of a company has certain challenges, which are mostly about you know, chaos, overwhelm, et cetera, but it's exciting. The descent of a company is a whole different set of uh, lessons that you learn. And I, I state somewhere that I learned about 10 times more on the way down than on the way up. I mean, you learn about yourself. You learn about how you operate in, in challenges. You learn about people. I mean, some of the folks with me were unbelievable how they stayed long, even at the end where they weren't making a salary, whereas other people were ready to sue me up front if I didn't give them all the benefits. So you certainly learn a lot about yourself, about stick to it in this perseverance, 
who your real character is and who other people's characters are. So th- there's, there were a lot of lessons learned in, in just in that situation. So afterwards, I mean, you talked about the other companies. I mean, I started another software company with a friend of mine for our local ambulance squads, and we did great until the state gave away a, a software program for free. So that was great. Another one was with a, a Russian scientist. We, we brought in some uh, equipment from Russia, Ukraine area and uh, medical products, and that worked well. But there wasn't enough business for the two of us, so I just gave it to my partner. So most of the lessons I learned was from that, that software company. As I hear you speak, I think actually I hear a few consistent themes. And so, you know, in terms of what interests you in terms of business and how you want to operate. So did you ever have a definition of what success was for you and how has that changed? Yeah. Success initially was about money. As I mentioned, my initial mantra was get financial security. Actually, yeah, it wasn't just money to have money, but it was financial security because that's what I didn't have growing up. However, as I did that, though, I didn't do it consciously, but I wanted everyone to have success. Uh, I, I wanted to give to the, to the entire organization because they, you know, we did it together. So I wanted them to have success also. And I wanted them to have the salaries as long as they could. So as I said, I extended that probably longer than I could have. So I used to define success not just as money because I had plenty of money back then and I wasn't happier. Uh, I mean, I was satisfied that I had the money, but life gets a lot more complicated when you have that kind of money. I mean, the charities come to you left and right. Uh, The lawyers come to you saying, now you need this type of thing. Now you need this type of thing. I mean, properties, I ended up having uh, several properties. I mean, everything got way more complicated. And I realized at one point I was spending so much time managing all of these things than I was living. So in a sense, when, when all of that was stripped away, and I just had, you know, one home, one thing, you know, life was much more fulfilling. So, so success is really about satisfaction, fulfillment, achievement of whatever it is that you want to achieve, which includes some money, which includes some notoriety, some helping of folks. It's different for everybody, as we all know. Some people just want money. Some people want fame. Some people want power. That didn't interest me. I, I just wanted something that uh, I guess I wanted to replicate the family situation with the financial security. (laughs) You talked a lot about the fact that you managed the company like a family and that ultimately that led to its demise. But what were the positives that you got out of taking that approach to managing the company? Sure. But I do want to say something about a comment you just made. That wasn't, the demise was not because of the family. Yeah. So I want to make sure the the listeners understand that. So the lessons there was, okay, it, it tells me who I am and how I like to operate, which is important. But the error, I mean, look, we, we error always on one side or the other, all right? We're never down the, the, the straight path. We're either erroring on one side or the other. We overcompensate, we undercompensate. We're always adjusting, you know, just like the space shuttle in space. It's always adjusting. It's never on course. Or when we're driving a car down a straight road, the steering wheel's not straight. It's always making a little left, a little right. So we're always making adjustments. So the place that I erred on was to give too much of myself. And as it turns out, it hurt me in the end. Okay. So that's what I learned. And so now I try to, I try to listen to that and say, okay, am I extending myself too much for the sake of some mental concept? I think I phrased the question maybe 
not perfectly initially. You know, by choosing that approach, what do you think were the positives that you got in the era when the company was growing? Because I, because I think ultimately, as I hear the story, it's really somewhat a story of a market moving away from you more than anything else. That's exactly right. The market moved away and, and everything happened. Uh, dot com bubble, Y2K, 2008. I mean, there's a, it's a whole myriad of situations that were uncontrollable. But to answer your, your question, it was very, very rich when the company was growing uh, and successful because it was such a team effort. It was such a community. We were all sharing in the joy and the excitement of it all. Oh, yes, there were issues here and there, but but by and large, it was one of the best times for all of us. I have ex-employees now 20, 30, 40 years later saying that that was the best time they had. So really, it created such a richness of what we were doing, a sense of community, a heartfulness in terms of, yes, we're sharing, we're growing together. And great. it's almost like a team, you know, like a baseball team or whatever, you know, and they work so hard together and they succeed together. That's an unbelievable feeling. And that's what we had during that period. And that was, yeah, to use the phrase, that was priceless. It really was. I try to feature leaders in this podcast who view the role of the leader as a servant. And, And I think that when you talk about the accountability that you felt towards the people that worked for you, I think to me that embodies all the quality in leadership that, you know, I aspire for myself and that all leaders that I respect that I came across in, in the business world tend to embody. So, Yeah, that, that's fascinating. I mean, I, I love the phrase of the leader as a servant. And, and it's true because as a CEO, you don't know all the answers. You don't know what to do. So in a sense, I just want to say, I mean, how many times I would tell people, what do you need? I mean, that's probably the best question a CEO can ask their people. What do you need to do your job? You know what your job is. What do you need to do your job best? And yeah, we did a lot of that. Why? I don't know. That's just the way we did it. But uh, it was very satisfying. And so when I saw that phrase once, uh, the leader is a servant, I said, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm going to skip around a little bit here. I was thinking about the conversation we were having earlier around improvisation. What do you think are some of the key skills and principles from improvisation and improvisational comedy that translate to leadership and to business? I was so surprised, Dino, how many translate. First of all, how many? Well, when I first built the website for the improvisation, I said, okay, there are at least a half a dozen benefits here. Wow, I came up with at least 20, over 20 benefits. And the principles, I mean, I was just blown away at how many wonderful principles there are, how many benefits there are, and how it can apply to business and everywhere in life. I think it's the best kept secret. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. But to sort of simplify it, let's say you and I are on stage all by ourselves, right? And let's say you come out on stage first, which means you have an idea. So now I come and join you because that's the rule. As soon as somebody has an idea, they come out on stage. You can't leave them out there alone, right? They had, they were brave enough to make this initiation. Somebody pops out there. So if you pop out first and, and then I come out to support you, all right? So here I am. There's an audience ready and listening. I'm sort of excited and nervous as, as probably you are. Because I have no idea what your idea is. <laughs> right? I have no idea what you're going to say, what you're going to do. So the first step is I got to listen and listen deeply. I mean, not just your words, but your body language, your sentiment under the words, as I call it, your emotion. What is Dino coming with here? All right. And so that's the first big step. 
listen deeply, the sentiment under the words. And and if you have a sentiment under your words, let's say that that's anger, for example, the audience feels that. They see that. If I don't address that, they're going to say, hey, time out. What, you know, what's going on? You know, you're talking about something different. They're going to be very unsatisfied, consciously or unconsciously. Okay, so that's the first step. Second step is I have to actually feel what my reaction is to you. So it's a self, I call that self-assessment. So if you say something and, and it makes me like surprised and shocked, I'm going to have some body language that's surprised and shocked. Now, if I don't say something that correlates to that, again, the audience is going to say, hey, wait a minute, there's a disconnect. You know, you are shocked and you're, you're not saying anything like that. You're, you know, you're not addressing it. So step two is I have to assess my feelings. If, if I'm uh, angry at you, if I'm surprised at you or whatever, and then I have to incorporate that into an authentic response. Hey, hey Dino, I'm surprised to hear you say that. Da, 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 da. So that's what I call the conscious communication cycle, which is critical in improv. So deep listening, and then assess my feelings, and then somehow incorporate that into an authentic response back to you, and then you do the same thing. And now we have a real connection, we have a real communication, and the audience is intrigued because they see that our feelings are matching our words and that this is real. So that's sort of the basis that I, I talk about in improv. Yeah, you know, and you think about the applicability of that even into like really simple things, right? It's interesting. When you said anger, the first business situation that came to mind to me would have been like performance review. Hey, Dino, you're not doing that great. Now you have to listen. Now, first I have to listen <laughs> yes. to why I'm not doing that great. <laughs> and then you have to you have to assess my response and respect my response and not fight my response, right? Because I think the three most powerful things that I find in improv is the idea of listening with an, o- an open mind, the idea of yes and, so the not just flat out denying whatever the other person is bringing at the table, even if it's crazy, finding the one point of commonality and adding to it. And then I think the most important thing, which is what you talk about when somebody steps on stage and the other person steps along, there's an understanding that these two people are there to support each other. Yes, totally. I mean, the other benefits you, you talked about, which is great. Yes, and and total support. We're there to totally support each other. Improv is not about you. It's about making your partner great. It's about supporting your partner. You never want to tell a joke or do a bit because the whole thing goes down the drain. So supporting each other is a wonderful improvisational benefit that applies to business. The other one is yes, and. I mean, I, I love talking about that one because how often is no a default position? You know, an employee goes to the boss, hey, I have a great day. No, 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 I'm busy. I'm busy. I'm busy. Late, late. I mean, no is so frequently used. Uh, and what does it do? It shuts down the, the person who's got an idea. All right. And it tells them you're not important. You're, you're dismissed if I don't have time for you. So I, I have exercises in the book for managers to say, find a way to say yes, no matter how small a yes it is. You know, hey, thanks for the idea. I'm in the middle of something. Can we talk about this later? Okay, okay, that's a positive response. Even if they know it's not a good idea. <laughs> Even if they know it's not a good day, when they come back and say, okay, let's let's take some time and discuss your idea. Ask them questions about the idea. I mean, you want to train them to show them it's not a good idea. That's your job as a manager. So ask them questions. Why did you think about that? What did you do? And asking them questions might do a couple of things. Number one, it might change your mind 
that there is something good about that idea. It might not be the original idea, but maybe an offshoot of that. Or it might help the person who had the idea, you know, modify the idea and you get brainstorming together. So you find the piece, as you said, that that is positive, that you can say yes to. And let's like, let's explore that. Let's open it up. Let's see what's there. And so you have a 10-minute conversation with the employee, or whatever it is, and, and you see if there's something of value there. And if it isn't, you both come to that conclusion together because you discussed it all, you opened it all up, there was nothing left. And we say, okay, well, hey, great try. You know, let's, let's just keep chugging at it. That is fabulous and absolutely true. I want to go back to something else that is also part of the book and your practice. You mentioned that mindfulness was part of your own personal practice and management for a really long time, even though, you know, you may have tried it a little too early with your team and your employees. What do you think were the biggest benefits that you got out of that practice through your 30, 40 years as a, as a leader, as a CEO, as a multiple serial founder and helping other? Because I know that on the side in the past 20 years, if I don't remember wrongly, you've also consulted for companies and CEOs, right? I tell you, the biggest thing that mindfulness has done for me is, is find out who I am inside. And I say that specifically because when we're young, we're usually not aware of who we are, right? Because parents tell us what to do. They tell us what to say. When this happens, you do this. When this happens, you do that. And they want to keep us safe. They want to keep us polite. They want to keep us part of society. Someone says, thank you. You say you're welcome. So in a sense, we're really not taught very much about what are our feelings and what are our desires. You know, sometimes they might say, what do you want to do? Well, if you're a child, you don't know. So over time, you gain more and more of who you are. However, for me, and I think most people, we get ingrained with those outside voices. You should do that. You should be this. You should do that. You should do this, et cetera. So there are tons of voices outside that we learn that we utilize that were probably important as childhood. They helped us survive and grow up, but that we're sort of programmed with these voices. So what mindfulness does for me is it quiets those outside voices so that I can hear my inside voice. Who am I? What do I want? So in my meditation, if those voices come in, I just say, ah, yes, there's that voice again. You know, you're not doing enough. You're doing too much. You're not perfect. Whatever. Just, okay, thank you very much. Let it go. And then come down to who I am inside and what I want inside and what are my desires. So it quiets the outside voices and helps me better identify my inside voices. This way, I'm operating more consciously from me as opposed to from these outside voices. Well, that's great. So let's switch to the personal. We've already covered your interest in meditation and in improv and how this turned from personal interest to something that had a huge impact in your business life. Is there any other hobby or interest that you want to share with us and maybe also had a bearing on how you think about business? I love to play tennis. That's that's my sport. Recently, I got into golf, which is frustrating, but but fun. <laughs> uh, I do lots of drumming, hand drumming, which is uh, gets into a wonderful meditative state. And I love to do improv. So in terms of related to business, well, yeah, tennis is also a great way. I, I took a class once with a, a tennis pro at Omega Institute. He called the Dance of Tennis. And he said, yes, you want to compete with your friends, but you don't want to kill them because if they're not there, you've got nobody to play with. <laughs> he said, tennis is, a, tennis is a dance between two people. So, so with that, I learned how to be competitively cooperative. 
and you can see, you know, all of us that play sports, there are some people there that are just unhappy playing. You know, if they miss a shot, they are so hard on themselves. So that, you know, that is certainly one lesson. You know, you don't want to do that, right? You want to sort of be kind to yourself. And also, if you win, you want to you want to be gracious. You know, you don't want to kill the other person because, if, like I said, if they weren't there, you would have no game. So instead, you want that person to challenge you. In fact, two two good people. When I, I have some really good buddies, you know, we love each other. We're we're friends, etc. But we say, I'm going to give you my best. Because your best is going to make me better and vice versa. So that's what we do. And if someone makes a great shot, we go, wow, that is a great shot. So, yeah, as, as I guess, as I think about it now, there are some leadership qualities there in terms of cooperation, competing with each other, pushing each other to make you better and better, and congratulating the other person if they win or, you know, hit a great shot. So, yeah, I mean, I've never thought of it in those terms, but uh, that's fascinating as I think about it now. That's great. So next question, this is my favorite question of the podcast. Is there a business expression or a jargon or a business cliche that drives you crazy? And what is it? Yes, it's one that's always driven me crazy on the business side. And it's this. It's not personal. It's just business. That makes me nuts. For me, that's just an excuse to act badly. That's it. I mean... You know, some people try to liken that to tough love, and I, I think that's that's erroneous. I mean, tough love, as we do for our children, it's coming from love, uh, you know, and we're disciplining them, et cetera. But when people say it's not personal, it's just business, nine times out of 10, I see someone doing something that is not out of love. It's not out of compassion, that it is truly a negative emotion or something that is that is not, well, I'll just say, let me just say negative. But they're using the word business as an excuse because that covers it all. That drives me crazy. That is an excellent point. I think it's most time it's like it's coming out of self-love and self-interest. Yes. <laughs> yes. And in some cases, it's totally malicious indeed. <laughs> Final question. I call it food for the body or food for the soul. And I ask my guests to share either a recipe or a drink that they love that they go to in special moments, or some people may choose a book, a piece of music, a movie, a piece of art, whether it's something that feeds their soul. Do you have something that you can share with us? In terms of activities that feed my soul, yeah, it's improv, it's drumming, playing tennis, watching a good movie, sitting on the couch. Uh, absolutely, that, that feeds my soul. Or going down and shooting pool. I mean, I have a pool table in my basement, and when I go down there to do the laundry, I stop off and shoot around. It, it feels great. On, on the side that, that I probably should, should correct a little bit more, you know, if I watch a good movie, I love a nice dish of ice cream. I mean, I just say, okay, this is my treat. I'm not going to get crazy with it. I'm not going to do it every night. But when I do it, it just, yes, I'm sitting here watching TV, having this wonderful dish of ice cream, and I'm a happy camper. <laughs> the flavor ice cream, it's a combination of vanilla and chocolate, usually French vanilla, which is like, and then, and then chocolate from uh, Haagen-Dazs or something like that. Oh, absolutely. And what movie? Movies, some of the CIA spy movies, a little bit on the action adventure, those, those kind of things intrigue me. Well, that's fabulous, Bill. Thank you so much for being a guest and for all your insights. Dino, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, find a friend who may enjoy it too and tell them to go listen to it. And if you really like the show, tell your friends and post about it on social media. Everything helps. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode when they get published. 
And if you're listening on a platform that allows reviews like Apple Podcasts or GoodPod, please leave us a rating or a review. And remember, the best review in June and July will receive a copy of Bill's book, Improvisational Leaders. Stick around, because at the end of the credits, I am going to play a song by Boston's fabulous indie folk duo, Honest Mechanic, which of course includes Susan Cattaneo. To find out more about Bill or to work with him, go to BillPrinciValley.com, spelled B-I-L-L-P-R-I-N-Z-I-V-A-L-L-I.com. You can also go to the site for the book, ImprovisationalLeaders.com. And finally, you can buy the book on Amazon.com. You can find me online at al4ep.com with the number four, and you can email me at dino at al4ep.com. On Twitter and Instagram, look for at al4edp, and on Facebook, the show is Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums, with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. And now, here's a song by Honest Mechanic. It's called Movie. Thin air, 
stare 